One of these days, I'm going to remember every little detail I need to remember, but that'll be all right. Listen, I want to take a few minutes just before we open the scriptures this morning and uh, uh, offer a word of prayer uh, to the Lord. Uh, the events in Virginia Beach on Friday strike close to home for us, right? They're very nearby, and maybe perhaps you have friends. In fact, I talked to someone this morning that is acquainted with an individual involved in that thing. So. Uh, I want to just uh, have a word of prayer as we get underway and remember those folks. So let's talk to the Lord. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace and that it is sufficient, uh, that we can trust the everlasting God who uh, does, not, does not change, does not alter, does not uh, get caught off guard by things that are shocking to us even. Uh, Lord, what happened on Friday is simply a tragedy that uh, we have a difficult time wrapping our minds around, and uh, Lord, rather than try and figure it out this morning, I just want to come to you and ask for grace for those uh, touched by this tragedy, by uh, this really senseless thing that has happened. And Lord, uh, I just pray that you would bring comfort and encouragement. I pray that by the power of your Spirit and through the hands and feet of people who are yours, children of yours, that there would be comfort ministered to those who have been uh, particularly directly affected by this. And I pray that uh, your name would somehow, in the midst of this uh, really horrific experience, uh, would be exalted and magnified, and that people would come to, uh, to trust in you, knowing there is no other uh, trust, no other, no other one worthy of our confidence from day to day. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to open the scriptures now, and I pray that you would go before us and give us insight and understanding, and Lord, uh, encourage our hearts and challenge our hearts as well, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're continuing in our study of 2 Corinthians. This is week number two. Uh, um, I uh, want you to know next week I'm happy to, that Pastor Andrew Oates will be here, our executive pastor at Coastal. He will be opening the scriptures. Uh, I will be away. Uh, this time it'll actually be on vacation and a bit of a restful time, so uh, my wife and I are looking forward to that. And uh, so anyway, uh, I, I hope you'll uh, be here. And again, I want to say, because, and I'll probably say it on and off, but two weeks in a row catches most everybody. Uh, if you are away, when you are away, don't forget you can get on the app, our, our Coastal app, and you can get on our website, gocoastal.org, and you can follow along with these sermons, all right? So you don't have to lose track. I think it's really important, especially in a series like this where we have an ongoing study through a book of the Bible. They are certainly independent to enough of a degree that they're a, a singular sermon, but they are obviously interconnected because we're teaching through a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. So there are going to be things that will interact. So I, if you can uh, keep up in that way, I think it would be very much worth your while. This morning, we're going to talk about the positive side of something that most people don't like to talk about. So I'm hoping that perhaps we will change that conversation a little this morning. And it's the topic of church discipline. Uh, in fact, I was with a buddy of mine last night, spent a few hours together, and he, he doesn't attend church anywhere, but he said to me, so what's the sermon about tomorrow? And asked me that often when we get toward the end of a week. I said, well, I'm talking about the, the positive side of church discipline. I said, church discipline? I never heard of that. <laughs> so I explained briefly. 
uh, as much as you can to someone who's never been part of a church. Here's the problem with church discipline. We have tended toward two extremes in Christianity. We either have been in churches where church discipline has been a really harsh, uh, uh, unprofitable experience for pretty much everybody involved, or we just haven't exercised it at all. We, we don't take sin seriously enough, or we don't take uh, the issues of, of the scripture seriously enough that we want to address when there are problems that need to be addressed. So when you picture church discipline, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 5. We're actually going to start there, and it's not in your notes. So you can go there, and I'm going to just talk down through the occasion from behind which our passage today lies, at least I think so. And uh, I don't want you to picture... Uh, the end result of you know some poor soul standing in front of a church being you know humiliated by everybody that's not my picture of church discipline church discipline is a process whereby we all help hold each other accountable for spiritual growth and to make sure that we're living holy lives all right so we're going to let me go through that and come back to 1 Corinthians 5 and share with you what I think is the background of our passage in 2 Corinthians 2 this morning 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm not going to read all 13 verses, but it's the first, thir well, it's all 13 verses of chapter 5, but I'm going to just touch on uh, a couple of bits and pieces. It is actually reported, it says in verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, I want to stop there for a minute. So what we have here is a man who is having an affair, sleeping with his father's wife. Nobody thinks that's good, right? I, I can't imagine there's anybody, even in your culture that we live in, among your, your friends who aren't believers in Jesus or aren't churchgoers, nobody thinks that's a good thing. But here in the church, here was this man in unrepentant sin. It was an ongoing situation. He, that's why it says he has his father's wife. He's, he's in an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife, and he's not repenting of it. The church was arrogant. Verse 2, you're arrogant. And verse 9, uh, no, verse 6, your boasting is not good. What were they boasting about? It seems that they as a church were all happy because they were so tolerant and so filled with grace. When grace ignores unrepentant sin, it's not grace. It's just laxness, right? So let's, let's understand that this is the situation they were talking about. It had the potential, verse 6 says, to leaven the whole lump. And I'm very sorry for to, to Megan, because I know she's back there just scrambling to try and keep up with me, because I just said 1 through 13, so please, it's my fault if there's any, but she's right on it. You're, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If, you are, if you're a baker and you use leaven, you use yeast, right? There's a, there's a little bit of a packet, right? You put it in warm water. Do you still do that? I don't know. I, I, I don't pay attention. Clearly, I don't bake. And it warms up, and you put it in the dough, and it makes the dough go, whew, it makes the dough get really big because the leaven gets through the whole thing. That's what sin does. It has the potential to infect the whole body. The way that they were to deal with this man, because this had been an ongoing, unrepentant situation, 
the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of the world. But now, uh, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, or reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That sounds really harsh, right? And that's why I'm really happy to be in 2 Corinthians 2 this morning. So hang on with me a minute, and we're going to come back around to the purpose of church discipline. Why, why is that even a thing? What happens is churches that understand the importance of church discipline are asking the following questions. How seriously do we take the Bible? If the Bible is, in fact, from God, if what I hold in my hand is God's Word, how seriously do I take that? Do I really believe that what it says I am responsible to do before God? How serious are you about taking the name Christian upon yourself? We live in a Christian nation, right? I mean, that's what we say. That's what... That's what it says when we have quotes, right? We live in a Christian nation. There are lots of places in the world where that isn't always the case, you know, and nobody claims in the culture to be a Christian nation. So when you take the name Christian, Christ follower, and of course in Antioch when they were first called Christians, it was not intended as a positive thing. There was no such thing as a Christian anything before they said, oh, those are people that follow Christ. It was a criticism. It was slander. Now, everybody's a Christian. I mean, everybody that you talk to, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And there's this, this kind of cultural sense in which Christianity has become part of our thing. But how serious are we about taking that name on ourselves? We are followers of Christ. A third question, how dangerous is sin to our physical, emotional, and spiritual lives? Do we really believe sin is dangerous? Do we really believe it can cause great heartache, great emotional upset, great spiritual shipwreck, that it can cause physical trouble. Do we really believe that? Another question, how much do we really want to pursue holiness? Well, that's a harder question, don't you think? We want to be Christians. We want to say we're followers of Christ, but really... How much do we want to pursue holiness? How much do we want to be set apart for the use of God? How much do we want to be set apart from sin? And are we serious about the calling to live in a spiritual community that's called the church? We, have, we are coastal. We have membership classes. It's interesting to me. This isn't a great sales pitch, maybe, to most people, but one of the reasons I love being a member at Coastal is because I'm held accountable to live for God. And if I get off track, there are people around me in my life who will say, hey, listen, brother, I, I care enough about you to, to tell you I'm noticing something. And if it gets bad enough long enough, my elders will come to me and say, listen, you have got to repent of your sin and walk faithfully with Christ. That, to me, is an advantage of being a part of a church family. If I'm serious about walking in holiness, if I'm serious about community, 
Church discipline is, is a natural thing. Let me give you four kind of quick keys to biblical church discipline from this passage in 1 Corinthians 5. I should have written all this down, but I knew there wouldn't be room on the page. So let me just kind of zip through it here for you. Sin tends to spread to a church. We talked about that in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5. There is, there is this, maybe not that specific sin, but when we tolerate sin, sin tends to spread. It is the nature of sin and the nature of rebellion against God that it tends to, we tend downward, not upward. Sin defames the reputation of Jesus Christ. When I take the name of Christ on me and then I tolerate sin in my life, it defames Christ. How many times have you heard the argument from people that don't want to come to church? Oh, there are too many hypocrites there, right? They know Christians ought to be different and when they watch Christians' lives in the workplace or in their community or they're watching them function in their homes outside of church and they're acting in a way that dishonors the name of Christ, whether they word it that way or not, they know something's wrong. Sin defames the reputation of Christ. This is what has happened in 1 Corinthians 5 is the final step, right? When Paul says, You've got to get this guy. You've got to put him out of the church. You've got to separate yourself from him. He's got to understand the pain of separation and confrontation. But that's not the first step. I mean, somebody, somebody falls into sin. The first step is not get rid of them, right? That's not, the, according to Matthew 18, that's where relationships, that's where community comes in. We go to a person individually. We go to them with a couple of more people so that we can make sure that we're taking steps to allow this person to get their life back on track to repent of their sin before it becoming a public issue. We don't want that to happen. And it's not our intention to shame people in any way publicly. Lastly, from 1 Corinthians 5, church discipline is for believers, not for unbelievers. That's an interesting statement in there, right? I didn't tell you you shouldn't fellowship with people who are outside the church who are not believers. I didn't tell you not to do that. You'd have to leave the world. It always is interesting to me how shocked we are when unsaved people act as though they're, well, unsaved, as though they don't follow Christ and don't have any reason to. In their minds, they don't. Why does it surprise us that they do that? As believers, we need each other. Church discipline is for those who call themselves Christian. And at Coastal, church discipline is for Coastal members. You can't discipline, you can't put someone out if they're not in, right? If they're not a part of us, we can't put them out. So it's reserved for members. So now, let's get to your notes and let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because this is the positive end of church discipline. When we get to this letter and this situation, now... From all appearances, this individual who had his father's wife has repented of his sin, which is the goal, right? I want to start. Discipline is purposeful. Let me start down in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. 
punishment. What is, what is the point? Why do we discipline? Do we discipline someone because, well, they just did a bad thing and we want to get them? Do we discipline someone because we don't want, we don't want their name associated? Well, what is the purpose of disciplining? Church discipline is designed to help us walk in holiness. It is for the benefit of the person who is involved. It's not so that our church doesn't get a bad reputation. That's, that's self-serving on the part of the church. It is for the benefit of the person involved. The pain of confrontation is to be preferred to the sin of silence. Discipline is purposeful. Discipline is uncompromising. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? I, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. This was, this was pointed and harsh, and Paul said, you need to put this guy out. He will not repent of his sin. You need to stop fellowshipping with him. He didn't want to have to come and do this in person. Verse 4, though. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Discipline is uncompromising. It's rooted in love. Paul was accused of being harsh, but he's the one saying, listen, guys, this, this fellow has repented. Don't, don't completely exclude him. Don't wear him out completely. This punishment by the majority is enough. Discipline is uncompromising. It's rooted in love, and it responds to impending danger. Just go over, keep your finger there, and go over to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians for a minute. Verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. It was uncompromising. He did not mince words. He didn't suggest, oh, let's take a little time. He said, we've got to deal with this thing and deal with this thing decisively. And they did. And he said... I realize I caused you grief, and it hurt me to do that, but it was godly grief which caused you to repent. It caused him to repent. It caused them to repent of the sin of toleration, tolerating sin, caused him to repent of his specific sin he was involved in. So discipline is uncompromising. Over in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 3 talks about the benefit of discipline. Discipline is for our benefit. I know all of you who are parents have said on perhaps a variety of occasions to your children, You're, I'm doing this because I love you. A parent understands that, right? I never, even as a parent, understood the this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you because 
I made sure that wasn't true, but, um, <laughs> but I get the emotional connection of that. Um, discipline is for our benefit, though. Verse 12 of Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers. These are brothers he's talking to. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Sin is deceitful even to the believer. And it can cause us to veer off the path of holiness and, and cause shipwreck with our lives. So discipline is for our benefit, and it's effective. The context of 2 Corinthians indicates Paul is saying, listen, you guys got to ease up now. This guy has been pained enough. He's repented. Now here's what you have to do instead, restoration. If we don't include discussion on restoration when we talk about church discipline, we're missing something. Really, we're only talking about church punishment if we don't talk about restoration. The goal of church discipline from the one-on-one -on -one interaction with a brother or sister in Christ who's honest enough and loving enough to call me on something that I'm doing to the meeting with several people to the fact that the elders of the church have to be called in, all of those steps are always designed with the purpose of restoration. Verse 7. Well, I'll start in verse 6. It's the beginning of the sentence. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love to him. Now, in the culture in which we live, and given circumstances that probably we all at one point or another have been familiar with, I want to be clear about something. This is not sweeping things under the rug. This is not saying, here's a person with this in their history, oh well, it doesn't matter, and covering over sin. There are churches around who have done that. I know of churches in my history who have just simply ignored a person's lifestyle and said, they've been saved, they've trusted Jesus, it's all under the blood, so we're not going to worry about it, and have ended up with serious trouble. This also does not mean that there are not legal repercussions to what we do. In the extreme, if you kill somebody and you repent and come to faith in Christ in prison, they don't all of a sudden say, oh, great, there you go, you're free. There are repercussions to our sin. The point here is the relational issues that are going on in the church, okay? So you ought to forgive, he says, verse 7. Once we have pointed out the sin, once we've brought sin into the light, then we lavish grace on it. Once a person recognizes their sin and repents of their sin, we lavish grace on it. We don't hang on to it. We don't store it away. We, don't, we forgive. We also are to comfort. 
it's the word that's used of the Holy Spirit, that we come alongside someone, we encourage them. After the surgery comes comfort. After the hard thing is done, comfort is needed. Again, this is where community becomes so vitally important. And you ought to affirm your love. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let me clarify, we're not talking about uh, a, an unrepentant, adulterous relationship here. We're not talking about a person who's dishonored Christ in some form or fashion in the community or in their home, has dishonored their husband or dishonored their wife or whatever it is. We're, we're talking about that. That covers a multitude of sins means you don't have to make an issue out of everything. When you love somebody, sometimes you just get over it. But we're talking about sin here. Keep loving one another earnestly. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. So that means forgiveness is not just intellectual or theoretical. Forgiveness is relational. It's about restored relationships. No sin is outside of the scope of repentance and faith in the gospel of Christ. If a person is living in unrepentant sin, the first question that has to be asked is, have you trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you a genuine follower of Jesus? Have you recognized that you're a sinner and you are on your way to hell if you don't trust in Jesus? Have you come to the point where you've trusted in Christ? And if not, they need to repent and turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as their only hope of salvation. If they have, and sin has hardened their heart and deceived them and they've gotten themselves off the path of holiness, still repentance is the solution, right? That's why we talk about the gospel so much at Coastal. It's not just what happens the day you come to faith in Christ and then it doesn't matter anymore. There is this constant sense of repenting. Repentance should not be viewed as a negative thing. Repentance should be a good thing. I'm turning from that which is bad for me and I'm turning back to that which is good for me in the person of Christ. No sin is outside of that scope. So no sin should be outside of the church's obedience to forgive, comfort, and love. Now, again, anyone who is truly repentant will understand that part of their protection, part of their restoration, includes appropriate boundaries. I know that's really vague. If you've been an alcoholic, we don't encourage you to get a job at a bar, right? Doesn't that kind of make sense? Not because we don't trust you, not because we don't believe you've repented, but because that just doesn't make any sense. Don't put yourself in a situation where you could be tempted by something that has been so horribly bad. That's why we do background checks for our children's ministry. Not because we don't trust people, but because we want to trust people. We want to make sure that the people who are serving with our kids, when visitors come here, they know these are people who have had no demonstrated evidence of anything questionable in their history. They're the ones caring for your kids. That's not because there is a lack of forgiveness. There is, there is a recognition when I'm truly repentant, there's a recognition I'm going to need me some boundaries here. We help each other. We serve each other by doing that. 
And then the last few verses, I think, show some strengthening for future growth. Verse 9, Paul says, This is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything, even the hard things, right? Obedience. Church discipline is never easy. Confronting someone else is never easy. And listen, this is why I love small groups. This is why I love people having accountability relationships. I, I don't ever want to see sin in a person's life get to the point where it's got to go to the elders of the church. I don't ever want that to happen. That's a last resort to keep them from being on a path to destruction, to keep them from defaming the, the testimony in the name of Christ so badly that they've just wrecked their testimony. I don't, I don't ever want to let it get that far. That's why we need people around us to speak into our lives, to encourage us, to help us. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Forgiveness is really important as we move forward. Learning to forgive. The cost of our forgiveness was high in the person of Jesus Christ. If I confess and repent of my sin, I will be forgiven. I should have a similar attitude toward my brothers and sisters who repent and confess their sin. And verse 11. Here's, here's why we need to stay on top of this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, verse 11 says, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When a person has trusted in Jesus Christ, they've believed in the gospel and have committed their heart and life to Jesus, they cannot at some future point in time, not be a follower of Christ. You don't, the relationship doesn't get severed. But Satan knows that he can distract us, he can dissuade us, he can get us off course, and sin is so incredibly deceitful. If we're serious about the Word of God, if we're serious about pursuing holiness, if we're serious about being part of the community of the church, we want people to help keep us on track. Why is it that if you want to lose weight, you go to wherever, sign up for an app where you can interact with people, or you go to Weight Watchers, or go to somewhere? Why? What are we, what are we looking for if we want to stay on track with losing weight? Accountability. Accountability. Why is it we don't want that for holiness? I mean, I don't want to, to uh, talk against the importance of good health, but spiritual health exceeds the importance of physical health. So if we're willing to get accountability for our physical well-being, how much more should we want accountability for our spiritual well-being? Church discipline is not intended to be something negative and harsh and excessively public and humiliating. Church discipline is simply the daily disciplines of life, interacting with people in my community, staying on the path of holiness. So let me give you four things I'd like to have you take home with you. I think they are on your bulletin. Sin in your life affects other people. 
Please don't ever make the mistake of thinking your sin doesn't impact other people. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that your sin isn't really that big a deal. Sin is sin. Sin hurts other people. Secondly, we should welcome accountability. I just talked about that, but please, if you, if you don't remember anything else, that's why I do these thoughts to take home. If you don't remember anything else I said in the last half hour or so, at least remember these four, okay? We should welcome accountability in our lives. Third, our goal is holiness. That can't be accomplished alone. Sorry, I don't care what anybody else tells you. Being a monk, going living on top of a pole or in a forest somewhere by yourself is not going to make you more holy. Walking with other brothers and sisters in Christ together, watching out for each other is going to be the thing that will help you get holy. Fourth, don't let Satan deceive you. It just happens too easily. I tell you what, as a way of personal revelation, I spent a lot of years as a pastor, and then I spent about five of them as a carpenter before I came on staff here at Coastal. I was shocked at how easily my heart got soft toward the things of God. I was honestly, I'd been a pastor forever teaching the scriptures. I was amazed at how easy it was to just not fellowship. Eh, it's just not that important this week. I was, I was amazed at how easy it was for my mind to countenance sin, sinful thoughts. It, it, was, it was shocking to me how easy it is to drift. Do, do you find that to be true? If we're not in a context where we are being alert and aware all the time, it's easy to drift. That's why God gave us each other. Satan will deceive you with drifting, usually not with some big dramatic fall all at once. Sin happens in increments. And the next thing you know, we're like the frog in water. We got in and the water was fine. And by the time it's boiling, it's too late to try and jump out. We need other people to say, listen, they turned the stove on. We need accountability. We need each other. So, man, God gave us the church. He gave us church discipline for our benefit so that we can walk with God and be holy. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, man, I'll tell you what, uh, I long for the opportunity to sit down and show you how you know. You can know your sins are forgiven. You're on your way to heaven. And we would love to have you be part of the family. Listen, that's part of the reason I think church membership is so important. It gives me a connection to a family that will help watch my back, help keep me on the path to holiness. If I don't believe it's important, well then, okay. But we need to be connected. Good enough? Listen, the worship team's going to come back. We're going to sing a song as we close, and uh, I'm going to pray. Uh, before we go, I thank you for being here, and I know some of you are on now to serve during our other service, but I trust that uh, this will be a week used for the glory of God in your life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for, well, I thank you that we're not in this alone. Lord, we, we recognize that uh, living holy, godly lives is really hard, and in some ways, it seems even harder in the culture in which we live. So, Lord, I pray for the one here who doesn't know Christ, who's never 
uh, made a commitment to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you'd give them the courage to, to come and talk to somebody uh, or to even just to check it off on the Connect card so they can get a contact this week. Lord, that's so desperately important. Lord, I pray for the one or more, however many of us it applies to, that are, are tolerating sin in our lives right now. Maybe nothing anybody else knows about. Maybe, maybe nothing that anybody else is, is aware of. Maybe it's just, I don't know, something in our home, something at work, the way we're behaving there. What, I don't know what it would be, Father, but I pray that you'd give us courage to, to tell on ourselves, to be honest, uh, to find somebody we can share it with so they can help us on the path to holiness. Lord, we want to walk with you. We want to be reflections of, of Jesus, and we want to reflect your love and your holiness to a watching world, and we can't do it if, we're, if we are the hypocrites that people are complaining about in the church. So I pray that you'd give us courage to do what we need to do to root out the sin in our lives, to not be deceived any longer by Satan. Thanks for your grace and that we can offer it to one another as we walk together in this uh, journey we call the Christian life. In 